Hi, and welcome to On and Off, our podcast covering the on-premise and off-premise beverage alcohol industry. I'm Kyle Swartz, editor of Beverage Dynamics Magazine. In this two-part episode today, I begin first by talking with my co-host, Melissa Dowling, editor of Cheers Magazine, about her recent travels to Tales of the Cocktail down in New Orleans, a incredible festival that covers the bars and restaurants, bartender and mixology industry, and what she took away from that conference. Melissa also talks about some of the alcohol events she recently attended in Manhattan. Following that interview, I speak with Steve Coombs, whiskey writer extraordinaire and good friend of mine out of Louisville, and he and I talk about some of the changes that have happened in the whiskey industry regarding how whiskey is sourced by companies that is specifically one of the largest sourcers of whiskey, MGP, recently shut down their sourcing program, and that should have significant changes for the whiskey industry at large. Steve and I discussed that. I hope you enjoy this two-part interview, and we'll get into it with Melissa. To talk about whiskey later on, now we're going to talk about me and some of the things I've been doing. Or I suppose that's a fair trade-off. It's totally fair. Um, <laughs> I've, I have been out so much. September is just crazy. Fall's always crazy. But I'm going to go further back to Tales of the Cocktail, which I don't think we've discussed yet because I, I was there in July and um, I hadn't been in a couple, more than a couple of years. And, and for the listeners who don't know what Tales is, what is Tales? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who doesn't know Tales? Uh, um, seriously, but yes. It's Tales of the Cocktail uh, every July in New Orleans. Thousands of bartenders descend on the city and there are seminars, there's spirited dinners, um, all sorts of brand activations. It's just, it's it's really just insane. And I don't know if you know this, Kyle, but it's super hot down there. And so I do happen to know the temper, the temperature of uh, New Orleans. And what, 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 I, what I also know about Tales of the Cocktail is uh, besides getting to skip out on that, where I would sweat profusely being a New England boy as I am, uh, in the New Orleans weather. I also think of Tales of the Cocktail as a week where I don't have to do any work because I'm the only person in the industry who doesn't go to Tales. <laughs> Every other person goes to Tales, but because you, Melissa, cover the bars and restaurants and on-premise aspect of the alcohol industry, and I do not, I do not go to Tales. And so during that week, I get zero emails. Nobody contacts me. Nothing happens in my inbox. And I just kind of nice. I get to just get caught up on some work, take it easy. Tales is great. I love Tales. <laughs> I don't do anything. It's wonderful. I do bare minimum. They'll listen well, to this It's podcast. also July, so people might be away. To... But so I wanted to bring this up because you know how I feel about QR code menus. Mm. Not a fan. I think we've discussed but there was a consumer insights panel at Tails that they were saying that they're seeing a return of the print menu and specifically for drinks. And I think this is so true because, you know, I, I just hate when you sit down at the table and have, everyone gets on their phone, tries to figure out what they're going to drink. And I, I think it, you know, my feeling is I know I don't order as creatively and, and probably don't spend as much. And it's, it's true by, the research shows that um, one of the panelists was from P.F. Chang's, you know, the Asian restaurant chain. And she was saying during COVID, they went to all Q, um, yeah, all QR code menus. But now what they do is put a drink menu, a printed drink menu down when people sit down and then they, you know, for food, they can go online use a QR code and access the food menu. And she said that it had increased sales like 
twelve percent, I think huh. that she said. And it's you know it's not cheap to print a menu, even a paper one. But it just that really resonated with me because so often you know you don't know what you're going to drink, you don't know what they have, and it's just that moment. As soon as you sit down, it kind of suppresses the whole hospitality thing. No, so, absolutely. And you know what? I, a couple of things come to my mind here as you're saying this, and I, I don't know what else was said on the panel, but I mean, QR code menus are always going to be a memory of COVID. I feel like so that's going to be a trigger for some people It's like just what we need is a reminder of that time period where everything changed for three years and it was horrible. Um, so I'm not I'm not surprised that maybe some folks have some like triggers with QR codes where they don't want to think about COVID again. And also like the, the, the pushing people onto their phones at restaurants is like the opposite of what bars and restaurants are about. And like, the point to go into a bar or a restaurant is to eat and drink with people and be social with them. And just what we need is another excuse to be on our phones. So I'm glad that we're getting away from something that was pushing people onto their phones. Yeah, that's funny. I don't think it came up about like being a COVID trigger, but I think that's probably true. It's just like, you know, when you see people in masks, it's just like, oh, no, here we go again. What else? Oh, so I did a seminar, attended one rather, on flair bartending, you know, when you throw the bottles around and so on. So I thought it would be interesting and to see some of the pros do it and it was but i didn't realize it was going to be interactive oh no (laughs) (laughs) so they gave everybody had like a a a dummy bottle that was weighted and they kind of showed some of the steps the next thing you know these bottles are flying and one fell on my sandaled foot more than once I'm like i know i'm gonna drop it but you guys are supposed to be pros you know? <laughs> is there video of this somewhere can i see video is this captured um it's not a good video but y- yeah you can uh i should put it on cheers because oh let's definitely funny. get the video up for the viewers to see as well i will say that whenever i get invites for events if i see the word interactive or the phrase mix your own i immediately say no Anytime it's like, well, how do you mix your own whiskey blend? Come try, see how the blender's doing. Like, I don't want to do that because mine's going to be horrible. Uh, Yeah. I don't, I just kind of want to sit there and drink and listen. I don't want to really have to think and move. Yeah. I remember I was on a press trip with Mount Gay and we got to blend our own rum. And so I was, I thought being very creative. And one of the guys, that worked there said something like, Oh, well, that's a very aggressive blend. <laughs> aggressive. Good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit that uh, back in the day before I realized that I shouldn't be attending these kind of events. And I still went to a few. Uh, my move used to be is for, for the final blend. I used to just submit whatever product we were drinking that day. So I would take some like Appleton 12 or whatever they would give us. And I would just pour it on my blend bottle. I'd be like, here you go. This is what I made. <laughs> way to participate um <laughs> uh, trying to think what else went down at tails i went to a whiskey dinner you'll be interested in that very jealous what brand um Le- legion legion sure legion bourbon it was introducing their yamazaki cast finish blend and not only it was a, a paired dinner they did whiskey cocktails from uh, Kenta Goto. Goto. He, he's a, a really well-known bartender in New York. Uh, really amazing drinks. Sure. But also the chief blender of Suntory whiskey was there. Mm. Shinji Fukuyo. 
I might have butchered that. Apologies but. if I'm mispronouncing any of these names. Blame <laughs> Melissa. Thankfully, I'm not the one with usually the Kyle's the one. <laughs> <laughs> um, usually, I'm stuck yeah, with that. That was really good, and I went to a William Grant portfolio party where it was big, you know, sort of indoor outdoor space at an old sugar mill, I think. Mm. And so all of the brands had their sort of station, you know, different cocktails and, you know, it was, it's like going to the circus, literally. There's mm-hmm. just so much going on. Mm-hmm. For people um, who are listening who have never attended one of these events where you have the option to drink like one of 90 different cocktails and whiskeys and spirits and wines and beers, it, it working in the industry really is, you know, like you got to remember it's a marathon, not a sprint. You got to pace yourself, drink a yeah. little, drink some water, keep going. You know, if you've had a brand before, maybe you don't have it again. Yeah, I will say there was tons of water all over the place mm. at the host hotel at, at Tails and I really didn't see anybody getting out of hand, which I think mm. used to go on in previous years. Um, but if I hadn't been there in five years, plus, you know, the whole COVID thing, it's like a, a totally new generation of bartenders mm. coming in. And they, like, took it very seriously, it seemed like. that Good. All the, the seminars were full. Tails is under new ownership, right? It's, it's new people running Tails, if I'm correct? Yeah, it's been a few years now, Tales of the Cocktail Foundation, uh, but this is the first time I think I've been since they've been in charge. And, and it was really good. It was a great program. And, uh, you know, it, it was all mostly in one hotels for the seminars goes, which, you know, was very helpful to not have to go outside too much. And, I mean, that's good to that hear because, I mean, let's just be honest here because, you know, we'll, we'll, we may as well be honest on our own podcast because the criticism of Tales for many years was that, and I heard this from a lot of uh, alcohol journalists, was that it just wasn't worth attending because it was more just about promoting the brands and less about promoting the industry. And it was just kind of a, um, I'm trying to think of a better word to use than cluster F. You guys can uh, <laughs> fill in the rest of that word if you would like, but that's the word I, I heard a lot about it. And that was before new ownership came in. So it kind of sounds like maybe Tales are getting back to its roots. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't there for the early, early days, but um, mm. it's de- there's definitely an emphasis on the education and Good. the craft and and a lot on wellness too you know taking care of yourself you know whether it's just you know you can get hurt on the job yeah. and pull muscles and stuff like that plus you know the late hours and the yep. a lot of drinking or there yep. could be so you really have to manage your life i agree i feel like that's a topic not discussed enough when it comes to uh bartenders and mixologists the need for uh self-care yeah yeah, I'm I'm definitely hearing more about it from good. and the brands are starting to focus on that as well, good. which is good. It's a difficult job. God bless them. Um, you were in uh, Manhattan recently as well for a couple of events, were you not? I was. I was just this week. I was at Campari's headquarters where they did a rare spirits sort of tasting educational thing. And that was really good. But they they had acquired a cognac brand that I didn't know. And it was kind of quiet, I guess, because it happened sometime this year. So we tasted that and, um, and a champagne brand. And oh, they um, they just struck a, Campari just struck a deal to distribute that Miraval Rosé wine. Hmm. That's one that was, was owned by Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Mm-hmm. And they when they split up, they've been- Did something happen to those two? I'm behind on my celebrity news. 
You're joking. <laughs> <laughs> They're still together, right? Even if you didn't follow, you'd probably know from the wine stories what went on. So that that had just they really didn't announce it because it's just a distribution deal. But it's kind of it adds, you know, a, a, a French rosé to their portfolio. And they have a champagne brand as well that they were pouring that night. But yeah, it was it was their headquarters in New York is just so gorgeous. I mean, they have the Boulevardier bar right kind of in the middle. I don't know if I've ever been there, but I don't know if I've been there before, but I was seeing and I, I don't I think I got the invite for that event and couldn't make it uh, for the listeners who don't know. I have a 20 uh, month old daughter at home nowadays, so it's difficult for me to get out of the house. I did see photos from some other alcohol journalists there. Uh, the great writer Amanda Schuster uh, was posting from there and i saw how beautiful the uh, headquarters were i can't remember if i've been there but they certainly look good in amanda's photos yeah yeah really gorgeous uh and then i was at a an event with hilton for their new mm. tempo hotel brand they just opened one in, in times square in new york and that was interesting because the the cocktail menu they have a list of drinks and then they have a list of the exact same drinks without alcohol Good. And they're all mixed with liars. But yeah, so that and they gave us the ingredients to make one of the drinks with what's a whiskey drink with the whiskey and then with the, the liars whiskey. So I haven't done it yet, but um, the drinks that I tried at the event, I did all spirited just because. Of course. That's what I do. <laughs> but I will try it with both versions and just see if maybe I'll see if my husband can tell the difference. That's a good idea. And I know we've talked about mocktails on this podcast before, but uh, I, I do always like to bring up that, of course, mocktails are very trendy right now. Uh, and you're seeing more and more menus like that one you described at Hilton that have a, a healthy mocktail uh, list of options there. And I, I always bring up the story about my wife who was pregnant with the aforementioned kid uh, during a pregnancy, obviously, was not drinking and was ordering mocktails at all the restaurants we went out to. And even after uh, my wife delivered the uh, child, uh, she continues to drink mocktails. You know, she became a fan of mocktails during her pregnancy and continues to drink them now. Yeah. I mean, even for I, I just I didn't really drink that much at this event. But even for like we were just talking about pacing yourself, it's like mm. it's a good way to, you know, try the the drinks and also, you know, pace yourself because you're working. And the quality of these products, uh, the non-alcoholic products that are mimicking the flavors of alcohol products, the quality of these things have improved dramatically in recent years. I mean, night and day, even from where they were maybe five years ago, I think a lot of these products taste 95% as good as the alcoholic version, or maybe good's not the right word. 95% is accurate because they all taste good. It's just the flavor. They're, they've really dialed in the flavor. Right, right. And also just the uh, texture, viscosity of mm. it to, to match that of a spirit. Um, it seems like it was harder to get the whiskey ones right. Mm. So I'll be interested in seeing how this one, this brand mixes up in different cocktails. Excellent point. And joining me today, Steve Coombs, my uh, good friend and whiskey writer, longtime veteran whiskey writer. I really want to thank you for joining me, Steve. How are you doing today? Doing great, Kyle. So glad to be on the podcast with you guys. 
Oh, absolutely. A pleasure to have you in. And Steve is just coming off of running the content. Or what is your exact title that you do over there at Kentucky Bourbon Festival? Director of Content and Programming. So anything that's kind of entertaining or informative, I'll receive that part of the event. Fantastic. It's good to have you in after that. I appreciate you taking time after that. I remember one year I I took part in the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. I I have a couple of funny stories from that. I'll tell a quick one right now. You know, Steve (laughs) is up on stage hosting panels uh, for much of the event, and I hosted some myself. And there's when you host panels at these events, there's a couple of different ways it can go. Uh, One of them is where the people talk and talk and talk and talk, and you barely get into any of the questions you have to ask. Um, And the (laughs) alternative to that is we have 15 questions listed and you get through them in the first five minutes of the panel, which is oh, yeah, exactly, exactly what happened to me on my first panel. And I just kind of had to sit up on stage and just make up questions for the next, I don't know, it was like 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that happens. Or, or you know, the, the one in between that is where you have somebody who agrees to be on the panel, but talks only about their own company and never really lets you get to the topic. And, and I learned this weekend, I was lucky that the other guy on the panel was funny and kind of a loud mouth, not a loud mouth, but, but uh, a big personality. And he kept steering it back. He was helping me, uh, you know, get this, get it off this one guy. So I have learned that every time I am asked to put somebody on that, I didn't source myself to get some, at least one other person who can be the foil in, in the uh, discussion and kind of, you know, be be the wedge between, you know, hit the, the, the blowhard and getting back on topic. (laughs) Good to know out there. And, you know, I also remember uh, Kentucky Bourbon Fest, the, a, a panel you were doing. It was the last panel of the festival the year that I was there. I believe the topic was on secondary whiskey prices and the rising cost of whiskey. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't really think there's anyone Sorry. in the world who cares as much about this as much as I do. I'm a self-admitted nerd when it comes to this. <laughs> and at some point during your panel, which I was not on, I decided that I was on your panel and I just kind of invited myself onto the panel. I don't know if you have memory of this. Well, there was did didn't you just stand up at the at the freestanding mic and just start asking a bunch of questions? I did. Right? I took the audience I mic, so. yeah. and then I never relinquished it. I went on to hold it for the rest of the panel, and I think I actually walked up on stage at one point. I was like, "Ah, screw it, I'm on this panel." I was probably grateful. That was a really difficult <laughs> festival in that it was the first one back from COVID, and two days prior to the event beginning, we had somewhere between six and seven inches of rain there in Barstown. And and when I heard a weather report, I texted uh, the the festival operator, Randy Prossy, and I said, what's going on, boss? And he said, it looks like a rice paddy down here. Yeah. And so if you remember, Kyle, it only got up to 84 degrees, but it was humid as (laughs) as a jungle. And we were just sweating, you know, like cheap hamburger the whole time. It was just awful. But um Hey, this year, perfect weather. It was fantastic. Good. Great crowd. Sell out 7,000 tickets. Great. And it uh, went, went extremely well. Very, very well received. I, it was wild. You guys did such a good job cleaning that up. And we could talk all day about the Kentucky Bourbon Fest, which is a lovely, lovely festival. I encourage everybody to attend. But the topic for today's podcast is major changes in the sourcing aspect of the whiskey industry. Colossal changes that, let me tell you, the company behind it did everything in their power to not make public is kind of how I feel about it. And I'm talking about MGP for anyone out there who doesn't know what MGP is. That means that you're not a whiskey nerd because anyone who drinks whiskey knows what MGP is. Mass produced grain products. Did I say the, did I get the acronym? No, multi-grain products. products. As I uh, clearly (laughs) showing myself not to be a true whiskey nerd off the top of my head, I thought, oh no, I don't know the acronym, do I? I'm so used to just calling it MGP. MGP, everything is MGP. MGP produces so much sourced whiskey for anyone who doesn't know. 
Uh, they produced a vast majority of the sourced product out there on the market. And a lot of brands out there were just buying juice from MGP, bottling it under their own brand or mixing it with juice from their own brand or juice that they bought elsewhere. And this was how things went for many, many years. Uh, then the list of brands that were buying MGP is too long to list here. It would be the rest of the podcast if I started listing it. Um, and then all of a sudden, what, what was it, about four or five months ago? I'm, I'm blanking on when it was exactly, maybe even longer. I, they did it. it was very hush hush. In 2022 is when I started to hear from NDPs, non-distilling producers mm -hmm. who were on MGP's teat, as we like to say down here, <laughs> they were saying that we're all getting cut off. Every single one of us are getting cut off because MGP wants to fill its own bottles instead of, you know, sell us bottles are where the real money is made and, yes. and bar barrels is great steady getting income. But boy, if you can, if you can sell the, a finished product, that's where the money is made. And so this is a significant change in the industry, MGP cutting off uh, its sourcing. And it cut off sourcing for many, many, many brands, including classic MGP brands, brands that really made their mark on MGP and brands that really helped bring MGP to light, brands that really helped establish MGP as a place you want to go for sourcing. So it was a, I really can't overstate enough how big of a change this is going to affect the industry, how much of a change this is going to make in the industry. And so what I want to talk to Steve about today, maybe even get into an argument or two, it's going to be a problem because Steve and I tend to be like-minded, but I'm going to attempt to argue with Steve. Um, is, what is this? What is, I'll bring out my mass hole nature. I'll get real mass hole on here. Steve is a Kentuckian and I am a mass hole originally. I live in Connecticut now. What, what does this mean for the industry? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And is it bad for MGP? Do we expect them to go back just right off the bat? Steve, what do you expect for this to do broadly to the industry? Well, let's start at the top with MGP. I don't expect it to change whatsoever. They know they've made the right decision and probably at the mm. urging of Luxco. Uh, mm. MGP, uh, the, the, the word acquired was used a couple of years ago. I believe it was 2021 when MGP acquired Luxco. But Don Lux, who has been the family owner of that business for many, many years and you know, following his father, that no, it's really it was really a partnership. He said I, I was mm -hmm. fine with the language for press releases, but but we are equal partners in this event. Uh, and for those who probably don't know, Luxco, uh, it's a huge bottling and, and distribution company, uh, and, and it's it's got its tentacles everywhere in so many mm -hmm. markets. And it was a great partnership with MGP to be able to say we want to take Remus, Rossville Union, any other brand we've had, you know, Ross and Squibb, and push those out through Luxco's channels. Which because MGP didn't have that. And as we know, the second tier is key. Having access, I should say, to the second tier is key to having a brand that really grows quickly. And, and it could turn the spigot into its own bottles rather than its own barrels that it was going to push somewhere else. So there's there's no coming back from that. I believe the, the stock share price has doubled since that happened in 2021 from you know just mid-50s to I think today I just saw it at 105 a share. They're very happy with what they've done. I and mean, that's not changing. So, all right, good. Gives me an opportunity to push back on you right away because I part of me questions this decision. It's I agree with you from a financial standpoint, an economic standpoint, and in the and at the end of the day, that's what's ultimately going to win out here. But the MGP brands are people drinking Rossville uh, other than Remus Repeal Reserve and the higher end Remus stuff. Are people drinking Remus? Do you see a lot of demand for these products that are branded under MGP? That's a great question. Um, and the answer is, I don't know the case counts on those brands yet. I, I believe they're barely three years old, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're still um, relatively And, and being, a, being a public company, I bet we could go and look at their, their reports and find case counts at least, or at least growth of those brands. 
Um, you know, outside of, I, I live in Kentucky, as you said, and Lawrenceburg, where the distillery is, is just about 80 miles up the road. And I don't know that I see those brands much outside of Kentucky. Now, granted, if when I travel, I hop on a plane. So am I going to see them in Florida when I go there next week? Probably. But uh, I, I don't know what the reach of, of those brands are. So that's that's a long, babbling answer to your very short question. No, but I mean, the reason I bring it up is, you know, cause I do see Remus and Rossville everywhere here in Connecticut where I live and in the general New England area. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, Remus Repeal Reserve is a phenomenal bottle that comes out once a year in September. High-end MGP juice, delicious. The new one that just came out, Remus Repeal 7, delicious, sweet, smooth, easy drinking, phenomenal. Can't recommend that whiskey enough, but the base level Remus and Rossville stuff... I, I don't see a lot of people drinking it. And what I do see a lot of it being used in is that my, my running joke for 2023 is that 2023 is the year of the bag because you see all the whiskey retailers putting out the bags where you have the, the popular pick and the unpopular pick. And in order to get the popular pick, <laughs> like a Russell's reserve, to buy pick, this, you got to buy that. <laughs> exactly. It's the year of the bag. And guess what's in a lot of bags. I see so much Rossville and Remus and bags. I do like, I, I, That's a great I love MGP, but I, I have to report what I'm seeing. And so I wonder who's buying these brands. Again, why I'm I'm curious whether MGP doubling down on its own brands is a good idea. However, it does bring up the fact that MGP, Luxco, whatever you want to call it, because like you said, it's not really one owning the other. It's definitely a partnership. That was a weirdly worded press release. Who knows the politics mm-hmm. behind that? Um, <laughs> it, they did just purchase Penelope, Penelope Bourbon, which is a very well-run sourced whiskey brand out of Jersey. A brand that I I thought from the moment it launched, I was I knew that brand was going to do well because it's run by good people who made good decisions and put out good product and did everything the right way. And for that, they got rewarded by uh, I think the total purchase price, if everything goes to plan, is two hundred fifteen million. I'm probably getting that a little wrong. I know I know it's over two hundred million because the owner corrected me when I posted it incorrectly in the article. <laughs> He's like, "Oh no, Kyle, it's like double that." I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Um, but I, I mean, Penelope. To be clear to everyone who's listening, obviously there's branding work they did, and obviously there's barrel finishing they work they did. But you can kind of summarize that purchase up by saying that Penelope sold MGP MGP's own juice back for two hundred million plus dollars. I know that's kind of a gross way to say it, perhaps, again, not taking into account all of the phenomenal work Penelope did in building the brand and bottling and barrel aging their products. But MGP bought a brand of MGP bourbon and is now assumedly going to sell its own product through a brand that already was its product. Well, I mean, you look at it this way. In in each of those two important transactions of of the Luxco partnership and then buying Penelope, it has not change its core business model one bit. MGP is a distillery, period. I mean, that, that's what it's done forever. Distilled and barreled whiskey. It gets Luxcoat. Now it gets access for its products in bottles. It buys Penelope. It, it now has a brand that already is flowing into distribution channels everywhere. And it never had to do a thing about it, right? Except write the check. True. So, I mean, this is, to me, this is very clever way to expand its business and expand shareholder value under MGPI. If you want to go see it on, on, you know, say Yahoo stats, it's, it's just, I think it's smart. It's not changing a single thing that happens in the C-suite in the production line, anywhere in that core business. It's just writing checks and, and using these brands and these companies that are already high functioning, successful, profitable businesses. My thought was excellent point. My thought when Penelope got bought by for all that money was, I wonder if Smoke Wagon is next. 
but I think uh, the gentleman who owns Smoke Wagon, I think th- this reminds me of something that Tito Beverage once told me, the owner of Tito's, of course. Tito, <laughs> I, you know, Tito always gets asked. I mean, I guess he's a billionaire now. Who cares? But Tito would always get asked, why don't you sell to a larger company? And obviously he got offers every minute of the day from global alcohol conglomerates to buy Tito's. And Tito told me, it's much more fun being the Tito who owns Tito's than the Tito who used to own Tito's. And I, I assume Smoke Wagon's got to be a similar thing because when you follow the social media for Smoke Wagon, I mean, that is all about the owner's lifestyle. And the other brand that comes to mind for MGP is Old Elk. But then somebody reminded me recently that the owner of Old Elk is already a billionaire. So what are you going to do? You know, billionaire. That brand. I don't know. And and, and that's Dave Metz that, who's distilling that, right? The former master distiller at MGP. Yeah. Is that yeah. correct? Uh, you know, Nashville Barrel could be on it too, mm. uh, on, on the hit list because uh, you know, they've done really well using MGP whiskey. It would be interesting to see them buy those back, but it's it, here's the point that concerns me. Like like you said, it bought back Penelope, which was a brand that was made from its own whiskey. And then all of a sudden, if you keep doing that, now you're putting all your own whiskey back under your own portfolio that all tastes the same. Mm. And I wonder if some of those Remus and Rossville bottles that you said are in the bag, you know, the dud in the bag, um, I wonder if that's why people don't want them so much is because they taste like the rest of the MGP already out there. Absolutely. Barrel strength, ver- yeah, barrel strength versions of those are unique and taste great, yes. but you know, not 90 proof or whatever. Well, we, yeah. that's in abundance. I wanted to bring up one more branding question before I, I, I do bring this conversation back to the sourcing. Cause Steve and I are going to talk about what this means for people who still source, but don't source to MGP. Yeah, yeah. But Ross and Squib is the new name for MGP. And every time I hear that, I just think, I mean, I'm just going to come out and say it. I think that's a terrible name. Sounds to me like a bad law firm. Like if you get into an accident, call Ross and Squib. Or a new uh, pharmaceutical. (laughs) It just just sounds sounds strange. They got a great dividend. I guess the Squib is a... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you're right. The, the law firm, the law firm, that's that's much better. That's an odd one. Every yeah, time that, I write an MGP story, I put in parentheses, Ross and Squibb, parentheses, formerly MGP, and link back to the same story I wrote when they changed their name. Like I must have linked that story 30 <laughs> times. Um, so the change, the change here for MGP shutting down its sourcing, Steve and I debated whether or not it's good for MGP, but who it's definitely not good for, I think, I don't know, maybe, are the many, 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 many brands that are sourcing whiskey and obviously with MGP gone, they're going to be looking for new sources to source from. And uh, Steve was telling me beforehand, I mean, obviously there's others in Kentucky who source, 1792 sources, Bardstown. Uh, you know, I, I was having a conversation with a Bardstown bourbon rep about what this meant for Bardstown. And he was practically licking his lips, telling me how excited he was to pick up new contracts. And Steve was telling me that there's a couple more sourcing houses coming online now. Uh, one he can say and one he can't say. So Caleb Kilburn and Cordell Lawrence... Uh, a pair from Kentucky Peerless Distilling, Caleb being the master distiller and, and Cordell being, I believe, the chief operating officer at the time, have left there to open Eastern Light Distilling, which is that's going to be built in Eastern Kentucky. It's going to be a big distillery, and it, it will be strictly there to supply whiskey to NDPs and especially and craft distillers to help them get off the ground. That's that. You know, that's something that Caleb kind of is passionate about in his heart and wants to help other distilleries. And obviously the niche is going to be more than niche, let's just say, because the demand will be so high to fill that vacuum left by MGP stepping out. There is uh, you know, a Tennessee distilling company just outside, yep. I guess it's maybe a little bit northwest of Nashville. They're, they're busy, busy. That's a big distillery. George Stickle still uh, yep. does contract. 
mostly aged stocks so far. And the one distiller that I can't cite, I've been told a few things, but it's going to be a couple of weeks before they make their big announcement. They also are purely contract distilling, do not want to do their own brands. They want to fill that void left by MGP. And where I think it's good is that if you have multiple makers and you have multiple flavors, you know, you, you got to finally start having some distinction in these whiskeys that are sourced as opposed to everything tasting like MGP or MGP plus a finishing cask. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. I don't know what Kyle is going on though with these ones that, that were just shaking in their boots over it when MGP was pulling out. I know, for instance, um, Heart Truth Distilling in Nashville, Indiana, which is a fantastic distillery. They just said, you know what? All right, that's our time. Let's double, let's double our production. We already are making our own whiskey. We were still sourcing some from MGP. Now we're going to double it. And now they're getting requests for contract distilling <laughs> or contract distilling. So I, I kind of see it as this cool opportunity because everybody's hand is being forced by it. What do you think? Excellent point. I do like that there's going to be some more variety in it. But I, I have to say, what about those of us who just love the taste of MGP? You know, because I, I knew which brands were bottling good MGP. I'm going to bring up my good friend, Dave Schmier, who uh, one of the people who helped put MGP on the map uh, with uh, Redemption Rye, Redemption Whiskey back in the day. Steve was holding up some Penelope. Was that an Architect series? I can't remember. Or is that the Cast Strength? That is the barrel that we picked for the uh, Bourbon Festival oh, uh, one or two years ago. Fantastic. I'm just going to crack it now that we talking about it. Yeah, why not? Um, well, I was going to bring up like, you know, I, I, Tumbling Dice is a, a product from Dave Schmier. He now operates under Proof and Wood Ventures. And this is just 95.5 MGP rye. And it's absolutely delicious. Eight-year MGP rye, 95.5, cast strength at an affordable price. And, you know, before MGP cut off its sourcing, I knew I could find this product wherever and whenever I wanted. And someone who loves MGP's 95.5. Now I'm not sure where I'm going to find it. And I'm not going to show what price it's going to cost. Like is MGP rye suddenly MGP whiskey, especially older stock, suddenly going to rock it up in price. You know, I may or may not be friends with a lot of people who flip whiskey. I myself am not a flipper, but I am friends with a lot of people who flip whiskey and they're all, well, I don't know if concerned is the right word because anytime the price goes up, it means they make more money. Sadly, they're hopefully don't listen to this podcast, but they, I mean, <laughs> they're all talking about the fact that MGP whiskey is suddenly going to go up in price. I wonder what this means for the price of MGP products. Actually, I guess it all depends. You know, well, scarcity drives pricing. We know that, especially when the product is good. And and I'm with you, man. I'm a huge 95.5 fan. I love that dill note. I love that. There's some, you know, well, pickling spice has dill, of course, but I, I just I think it's great. I've, I've had examples of yeah, exactly. Um, what is it, Traverse City? I have an eight year mm. rye. I think it's Phenomenal. on my shelf somewhere. Love that. There it is. Yeah. Our uh, a group that I'm in, uh, Bourbon and Banter, picked that barrel, and it's just phenomenal. Now that's MGP that that these guys bought the barrels, hung on to them for you know, six or eight years. I don't know how soon they got it. I don't know if it was new maker or Zage Spirit at that point, and they weren't cheap. I mean, that was a ninety dollar bottle, I think. So I think that that's an indicator right there that that with that lessening supply. If the, especially if a knowledgeable buyer like you and I look at those bottles and go, that's MGP 95.5. That's been around for eight years. The distillery was really kicking butt. Yeah, I'm probably going to pay that price and grimace at the same time because we really like it. So maybe that benefits the, the smaller producers who, who've been on the teat all that long. But when it dries up, what's going to happen? 
You know, are these guys going to start, you know, Traverse City, Traverse City does distill some of its own stuff. So are they going to work harder to make their own in the spirit of 95.5? I I don't know. And they don't have the column stills that MGP does. That's for sure. Yeah. Or, or the 175 years of history, um, perfecting every single process. And so are these products going to taste worse? You know, that's my other concern. You know, I I know what MGP tastes like, and it's so wild to have been in the industry to see the change in MGP where like, even as seven years ago, MGP was still a dirty word. Like, Ooh, that's an MGP product. It's source. They're not making their own stuff. Then all of a sudden everyone was like, Oh wait, no, MGP is delicious. MGP is a great thing. We should be buying MGP. What are we talking (laughs) about? Who gives a crap that it was source? Good whiskey is good whiskey. And now it's gone even further to where MGP might actually become kind of harder and rarer to find or more expensive. So, you know, some of these brands that are changing to some of the newer sourcing distilleries, I mean, obviously I wish them all the luck in the world, but good luck keeping up with a brand, you know, changing from a distillery that's 175 years old to a distillery that's five years old or even less. I wonder what it's going to mean for the quality. Well, did you ever meet Pam Heilman, the the former master distiller at Michter's? Absolutely. Pam, what a legend. Yeah, she was awesome. And she said, you know, new copper, new distillate. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how good your recipe is. Doesn't matter how close your still is to that still new copper, new distillate. And so you're exactly right. There's going to be risks that that it's that you can that'll change some. Can you adjust the barrels? Can you adjust the age? Probably sure to help, but still not going to be exactly the same thing. So who knows? Who knows what the taste is going to be like? And and Let's be honest. How many people? I really believe the eighty twenty rule applies to mm. whiskey drinkers, in that twenty percent really, really care, and the other eighty percent just enjoy the spirit. And you know, they're social about it. They don't nerd out about it, and they may never taste the difference. But you know, do you think it really, it's really going to be a big deal to everybody? Excellent point. If you're yeah. not tasting real Lawrenceburg ninety five five in a in bullet bottles, because bullet's still a customer. Yep, absolutely. And that's the thing. They have retained some customers. Steve makes an excellent point. Some contracts are remaining. Steve is drinking whiskey. I'm drinking whiskey. I feel like we've maybe exhausted this topic. I feel like we've done a good job kind of talking about here what uh, the MGP change means. Big picture, it's going to mean a lot more Penelope. Get ready to see Penelope everywhere. It's going to mean possible higher prices for MGP. It's going to mean a lot of products tasting different as they go to different sourced uh, sources for sourcing. And it's going to mean more distilleries making their own juice as well, rather than distilling as much. And Steve is right. The stock has doubled for MGP. So probably at the end of the day, the finances are going to win out here and probably will be a good thing for the distillery. But who knows? I feel like we covered both sides of this issue pretty well here. Right. MG, long story short, MGP is feeling it, but they're going to win on every choice they're making right mm. now, I think. Mm. I want to end, Steve, by saying, uh, what are you drinking recently that you enjoyed? I had... Uh, I, I did at the Bourbon Festival. I did a food and whiskey pairing with Jasmine Weaver, who's the national brand ambassador at Barstown Bourbon Company, and she brought a barrel sample pulled that morning of I'm thinking it's a six or seven year old version of their high rye whiskey, thirty six percent rye, and paired it with I had a pulled pork, smoked pork, hot mm. right there on everybody's plates. It was the boss. I, I, I just love rye and and pork. I think they go fantastic together. So that 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 was the most exciting thing that I that I drank there. You know, but but Hemingway rye was there. I was particularly mm. hot on rye that weekend. Buzzard Druce had I believe had a high rye whiskey. I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, you know, when you make those festivals, when you when you 
direct and work on them, you don't get to drink much. You don't get to have much fun. (laughs) Exactly. But but the old St. Nick, ancient cask rye whiskey, which is, that's freaking fabulous. That's one of my favorites. Came out last year and and I got a press sample of it and it's just amazing. I've really enjoyed the Bardstown rye. Their own rye has been phenomenal. I really enjoyed that. I'm going to bring up a product. And I was talking to Steve about this earlier, and it may be a little bit bigger than some of the brands uh, Steve just mentioned, but that's Heaven Hill's latest Elijah Craig Battle Proof, the C923 edition, 133 proof, 13 years, seven months. I can't believe, I mean, if they made this a Parker's, I think it would have worked well. This is the best Elijah Craig Battle Proof I think I've ever tasted. It is phenomenal, rich exquisite tons of chocolate tons of earthiness none of that nuttiness that people sometimes complain about with ecbp i mean this is to call it a home run is an insult to home runs it is maybe i said that backwards <laughs> but it's it's the best elijah craig barrel proof i've ever tasted they knocked it out of the park every sports idiom i can use i can't praise this thing enough this is a memorable bottle and if you see it buy it buy it in batches i can't believe it srp 75 dollars truly is yeah, t- t- truly is. And it does not drink like 133. I think it drinks yeah. much softer. Totally agreed. It is very smooth. It goes down way too easy. I've already gone through a quarter of the bottle. I have shared it with a lot of people as well, I should say. This is one to definitely share with your friends. You know, Heaven Hill did send out some press samples recently of a 16-year-old malt whiskey. Mm. Unnamed. They just, they just wanted the press opinion on it. Were you on that? I don't think I was. Did you get a sample of that? It is freaking phenomenal. That's good. I love it. Now, if you're a Scotch fan and that's what you're thinking, single malt, it tastes absolutely nothing whatsoever Mm. like what you're used to. It's very fruity, floral, fragrant, Mm. powerful, all the same. I can't wait to see that in a bottle. But yeah, that that blew my mind. was not expecting that. They also have a new rye recipe that we believe is the Square 6 rye recipe. Square 6 is a product made only at the Evan Williams. was a bourbon experience, the Visitor's Center in Louisville. And it's got a much, much higher rye content than their standard Rittenhouse line. Same thing that goes into Pikesville. It, too, is absolutely amazing. So that that little goodie bag was a great surprise. I, you know, and again, Heaven Hill Rye, uh, their Parkers this year was a rye, which I remember when the news came out, myself and a lot of other whiskey nerds were like, really? A rye and a Parkers? Are you sure that's what you want to use the Parkers for? And then that sample came in. And I got to tell you, it's one of the best ryes I've ever tasted. I think it's the best Heaven Hill Rye I've ever tasted. It's rye perfection. It's like the paradigm of rye. I don't really know how else to describe it other than it's everything you could ever want from a rye whiskey. I, to be honest, with you, I, I was a little disappointed at first when I heard it was going to be a rye. And then the, the rye is beautiful. It's everything you want from it. I know Parker's are very difficult to find. If you can find this one, it's definitely worth the taste. Phenomenal, phenomenal product. Looks like you're holding the sample that right one's- now. Right. 10 years old, 128 yes. proof. Now there was, that's the second Parker's Rye. There was one three years ago yep. that was the number five char. So the extra char barrel that I liked a lot. And it's funny, boy, when you look back a few years now, I thought, you know, sure like it, but $140 sounds like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, times have changed and thankfully uh-huh. so has my income. So I might have bought that had it come out now. <laughs> but, um, you're exactly right, Kyle. I, I'm a rye guy. I, I just mm. I, I gravitate toward that. And um, if I could find one of these at a reasonable price, this new cash drinks, or I, I would I would take it. It's cool. I'd, I'd buy that at a heartbeat. Well, Steve, I want to thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> yeah, I wish we'd have argued more. But I mean, this is a pretty this is a pretty linear subject. I think of that you know this happened, this happened. And it's all good, and everybody's got to work out. You know, it's 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 going to make the industry a better place. I think we're going to get more varied whiskeys. So I'm excited about that. 
And we will certainly see you again. Thank you, Steve, so much for joining us. And thank you to everybody who listened. And please do stay tuned for uh, the next uh, episode. Cheers. If you enjoyed the On and Off podcast, please hit the subscribe button. Also, you can find more great content at cheersonline.com and beveragedynamics.com, including recipes, product reviews, and interviews with the movers and shakers of the beverage alcohol industry. You can also sign up for our free weekly e-newsletter for both publications on our websites. Cheers. Cheers.